0: We've been tiptoeing our way into the gospel according to John. Going quite slow, actually, just a verse or two at a time. And I, I told you before, if you've been here, I don't plan to take uh, that long through this entire book. That would, that would take quite some time. But today we're going to finally catch up a little bit. We're going to pick up some speed and cover a few more verses. We're going to be in John chapter 1, and I'll be preaching through verses 6 through 11. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open to this passage. Just by way of introduction, I want to remind you that the first couple of verses that we covered spoke to the nature of Jesus. The first couple of verses told us that he was the word with God and was God. It told us that Jesus is the creator God. He is divine. He is the source of all things. Verse 3 and 4 continued on to tell us about what he accomplished, what he did in bringing all things into existence. The Bible says that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And we spent significant time just kind of walking through those verses to see who Jesus was and what he did. Today we're going to pick up on a a passage that kind of switches gears slightly for just a moment to focus in on another character who's not Jesus, to focus in on a creature rather than the creator. And that's how we're going to start seeing the Apostle John, as he's writing this account of the gospel, uh, bring us into the story of Christ in this world. So I'm going to read verses 6 through 11 out loud and ask that you follow along. I'm going to pray, and then uh, the goal is to go back through a verse or two at a time, and hopefully we can be well served by that pace. So again, verses 6 through 11. You can follow along if you have your Bibles with you. Let's pray. Father, please open our, our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to this. Help us to see what you've written here, what you've preserved throughout the ages. Help us to soak it in. We, God, we want to love you more. We want to understand your word. We want to be able to apply these things even tomorrow morning. And so, uh, God, please do a, a great work in us. Help us to walk away uh, more edified uh, in our life because of what we're learning here through John chapter 1. And draw to mind all the application you want for us to have as a result of this teaching. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to verse 6 and 7 again. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. As I said before, the first five verses told us all about Jesus and him bringing all things into existence. And here we see another figure enter into the story. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago when we started this gospel journey, you might remember that I had said then that John who's writing this is John the Apostle. And the Apostle John, as he's writing this down, uh, never refers to himself by name. Here, he's talking about a different John. He's talking about John the Baptist. That will become very clear as we continue through this chapter. In fact, as we get farther and farther into the chapter, we're going to get more and more familiar with John the Baptist. So a lot about him, who he was, what he does, uh, we're going we're gonna to wait to talk about when we see um, him unpacked a little further. But this is John the Baptist. He was a cousin of Jesus on his mother's side. You might remember that Mary... Uh, The Virgin Mary who gave birth to Jesus. Mary was a a cousin, a relative to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth gave birth to John, who would be John the Baptist, about six months before Jesus is born. Jesus even says this about John the Baptist later in his life. He says this in Matthew chapter 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That is high praise, especially From the mouth of Jesus, there is no one greater than John the Baptist, he says, of all mankind born from woman. That's a pretty profound statement for Jesus to make. This John the Baptist was sent from God. You see, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. In fact, his coming, his his being sent was prophesied in the Old Testament. In other words, this ought not be a super surprise for John's readers, the apostles' readers. Not only might they be familiar with the character of John the Baptist in their lifetime as they're first reading through this gospel account, or perhaps just before their lifetime, but also if they're Jewish, they might know that there was a prophecy in the Old Testament saying that there would come a forerunner somebody preceding the coming of Christ who was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. I want to show this to you in the Old Testament. If I were to ask you to turn to the last couple of verses of the entirety of the Old Testament, 39 Old Testament books as we have them in our English English Bibles here, if you were to go to the very, 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 very last passage there, that would take you to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And I want to read for you that final word, Before 400 years of prophetic silence in the Old Testament time, it says this. The prophet Malachi writes Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is John the Baptist. One coming in the spirit of Elijah. And we'll unpack more of that as we see that talked about later in this chapter. But the Old Testament said that there was going to come a man like Elijah, called Elijah, who would be preparing the people before the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. So here, the Apostle John points this to us. He goes, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That all might believe through him. Now before we kind of move past and unpack a little more of this, I want you to note something that if you're reading this as I am right now just in English, we're missing something really cool that is present in the Greek that's not present in our English rendering of this just one of those unfortunate things when you do a language a translation from one language to the next you might kind of uh, miss this so after i'm studying this it was really cool to watch this we just learned in the few verses preceding that all things were made through christ that means all things were brought into existence by him in fact the greek word there agenata, is used and it's it's a word meaning bring into existence we just heard that All things were made through him. All things were brought into existence through Jesus. Now that same word, brought into existence, is right here in the first two two words of our English rendering. We render it as there was. And that, that is part of the semantic range of the language. But here's what I mean to convey. That same word begins this sentence. And so the sense that is carried here is this one of those things made by Christ, brought into existence by him, was sent from God, and his name was John. So here's the point. The Apostle John here makes it super clear in these seven verses, you know, verse 1 through right here, verse 7, he makes super clear Jesus is the creator and John the Baptist is a creature. Jesus is the one who brings things into existence. Oh, and one of those things he brought into existence was this guy named John. That's how it's written. If you're reading this in Greek, you'd catch that right away, that language being used. In other words, the apostle John is taking great care to distinguish between these two great men. In fact, back in the earliest days of the church, there were some people who uh, followed the teaching of John the Baptist, had been baptized into John's baptism of repentance, and yet they didn't know what to make of this Jesus character yet. They, they hadn't quite yet closed the gap. Well, well, we follow one great guy, John, and I know these other people follow this great guy, Jesus. Things hadn't yet been clarified for what's going on. Right here, the Apostle John makes it clear, these guys are not on the same level. We have Creator, and we have Creature. But so as not to undermine John and his role, he quickly says, "This, this creature, this one brought into existence by Jesus, was sent by Jesus for a purpose. He was to be a herald. He was to be a royal courier, bringing a message, delivering it from the king to the subjects of the kingdom. He was a witness He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. We, likewise, are called to be witnesses to Christ in a very similar way. While John preceded Christ and pointed to his coming. Hey, prepare your hearts. How to prepare your hearts? Repent. That's how you prepare. That's how he witnessed to the coming of Christ. The need that they had. Your sinfulness of heart that needs to be dealt with. While he pointed forward to the coming of Jesus, you and I are to be witnesses about the fact that he's already come. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, that same word witness is used in the commission given there. Jesus says this in Acts chapter 1, You will receive my power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus told his disciples to be witnesses, just as John was the first witness Of Christ's coming. Verse 8 continues this idea, tells us not more about who John is, but technically it starts by telling us who John isn't. It says, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Don't, Don't be mistaken, John wasn't the Messiah. John wasn't the focus. John wasn't the hero of the story. He came to bear witness about the hero of the story, here, the apostles being so careful, so clear to make it uh, hardcore guardrails tell us who Jesus is and who, who John the Baptist is, who, who John the Baptist isn't. He was not the light. He was not the word. He was not the source of all life. He came to draw attention to the light. He came to be a witness. I think that when you're in the process of saying such grand and glorious things as The apostle says here about Jesus, he's making it very clear. Now I'm switching gears. I'm talking about someone who's not Jesus. Don't be confused. It's an awesome guard. That was his purpose. Not to make much of himself, but to make much of Christ. Not much of self, but much of Christ. And here is a simple yet critical imperative we can take away. This is just a statement being stated about John the Baptist and about Jesus, what John came to do. But an imperative, nonetheless, we can draw from this. Make much of Jesus, not men. Make much of Jesus, not men. I quoted for you Matthew chapter 11 a few moments ago, where Jesus says, the greatest man born of woman was John the Baptist, and what did he do? Made much of Christ. Less of himself, more of Christ. We'll see that even as we continue on learning about him in this chapter. But we must make much of Jesus and not men. And this is one of the things that is so distasteful about the recurring issue of idolizing or venerating religious leaders. And this is an issue that goes all the way back to the ancient days of humanity and persists even until today. We can see as we look back into a different... Uh, different of the Christian, the Abrahamic faiths, those who draw upon the Bible and point back to their roots saying that they're they are of Christ. We see veneration of popes. We see veneration even of saints. There, there are whole millions of Roman Catholics today who point back to past Christians and pray to past Christians because they make much of man. We must make much of Christ. In fact, this is a problem even in the days of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see the people there kind of puffing out their chest about who baptized them. Well, I, you got baptized just by Peter. I was baptized by Apollo. Well, I was baptized by Apollos. And there's this arguing going on about who was baptized by a greater person. That's folly. We ought not do that. It's a warning given to us in the Scripture to not make much of men to make much of God and John the Baptist makes much of Jesus. We can see this warning of past Christian history of the veneration of popes and of saints. We see it around us here in Utah and the the idolizing and almost worship of of Mormon prophets, present and past. If you're from a Mormon background, you, you know what I'm talking about. Because there are people today, even in our state, in our neighborhoods right around us now, who make more of man than they make of Jesus. More of guys like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, even if not modern prophets, past prophets. In fact, it's not an uncommon thing that when I've talked to people on the streets and uh, found someone from a Mormon background and trying to explain some things about the Bible and how important it is to see who Jesus really is. We might make statements to the effect, you know, Joseph said this thing and Jesus taught an opposite thing. If you ever see one person teach something contrary to Christ... And you see the clear, demonstrable teaching of Christ, which should you follow? Easy answer for us. Make much of Christ. Submit to him, not to men. But as a Protestant, as an evangelical today, we we can't merely point the finger at everybody else. We have our own celebrity pastors. Present day, not even past. We have present day celebrity pastors who... Many people make much of them. Many of these individuals make much of self. And it's just preposterous. The whole celebrity pastor phenomenon is entirely incompatible with the gospel because we are never to be the ultimate heroes of the story. Jesus is to be the hero of the story. And our job is simply to be a witness of him. So so think of how upside down it is, how backwards it is when those who should be the most careful to point to Jesus end up making much of themselves. One of the goals of a faithful pastor is should be to be forgotten in history. Just forgotten, gone. Hope a day comes and they, they step over my grave, not even knowing I was there. That all glory be to Christ. How important it is it that we see this. John the Baptist knew that, knew this. In, what we're going to see is John the Baptist, who's like this most amazing figure, and he just he amasses just hundreds, maybe thousands of people come to him. He just disappears off the pages of history. Once Jesus shows up, we'll get there. But we must make much of Christ, not of men. Be very careful not to make much of self, not to make much of other sinful people, but to point to him as the true light. The next verse tells us more about this true light. Look at verse nine. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, if you want to study this on your own, this is a great uh, line to study. There have been people who have wondered if this is talking about the idea that Jesus was always present, even in the Old Testament day, right? He was present with the people. So is that what it's talking about? Or is it more talking about the fact that he is coming into the world in, in his incarnation? Him showing up in history, him becoming a baby, Christmas morning, celebration kind of stuff. I think it's more likely it's talking about him coming into the world as a baby. I think it's more likely the incarnation. But test that out for yourself. One thing we do know for certain right here is it's saying that he is the true light. If you see any light in John the Baptist, and there is some light you will observe there, but the true light, isn't it coolly distinguishes? the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. The real light, the authentic, the genuine light, the source, light. Uh, you might have uh, heard this illustration used. There are Christian songs throughout history, even modern, modern ones that use this illustration. I've seen poems and uh, little isms on uh, placards the Christians say. I think this is a helpful illustration to picture uh, the sun and the moon. There's a little bit of a breakdown of that in the Bible as well, about the idea of two different kinds of glory here, that the sun actually gives off light. It is the source light. The moon gives off no light other than what it reflects from the source, right? It's a cool illustration. It's a wonderful thing that the Lord hung in the heavens, that in the darkness, what gives light. You can, in fact, on certain nights when the moon is bright enough, you can read a book to it. But you and I know that the moon doesn't provide light as a source. It reflects the light of the sun. And in many ways, that's how we are to think about the light that we reflect. Christ is the source. He alone is the true light. John the Baptist was not the light. Jesus was. And What does it say about this light? The true light, which gives light to everyone. Everyone. What does that mean? Everyone. All people, everyone. I think that this is pointing back to verse 4, which we covered the last time we were in John chapter 1. I'll read verse 4 for you. It says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, not to rehash everything that we walked through when I was here last, the point made there is that all mankind is the recipient of this kind of light. I think it's restating what he was saying earlier, which gives light to everyone. Everyone has this kind of light inside of them. I argued back when I was there that the light of Christ in all of us is owing to our status as image bearers, made unique in all creation. As a result of the status, we each have the capacity to know God in a way that is different from everything else in creation. We are designed to relate to him. We are made for that. And even in spite of our fallen, darkened sin nature, we still have that light in us and are therefore without excuse in how we relate to God. I told you that was the John Calvin's view of that verse. I agree with that, that uh, assertion as well. John MacArthur agrees with this assertion from here as well. I want to read a quote he said. Through God's sovereign power, every man has enough light to be responsible God has planted his knowledge in man through general revelation in creation and conscience. I think that's what's being stated here as well. That's a good explanation of that. I've been asked before, my kids love asking heaven questions. I think I've conveyed that to you in the past. Daddy, will this be in heaven? Will we do this? One of the things they ask is about animals will animals be in heaven will be well, probably it looks like it sounds like there's animals in heaven will we eat them i hope so i hope we can still eat animals or maybe an apple will taste like bacon one of those things will be the case that's like but they ask about animals and souls and you ever heard that question do animals have souls and how does that works out I, I don't know here's what i do know for certain we relate to our creator differently than dogs will relate to their creator we will relate to our creator differently than all animal kind all creation will relate to the Creator. Why? Because you and I were made to relate to Him. We were made for that. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I want you to consider what this means then. When a person resists Jesus, he resists the very thing he was created for. In other words, when we give the gospel call, when we call out for a person to repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus, we are not calling them to run counter to what they were made for. Hey, I know you're designed for this thing. I want you to operate distinctly from what you're made to go do. Do something counter to that. I know fish were made to swim, but I want fish to fly instead. No, 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 no. In fact, I want to say it like this. I think this is a true statement. It is entirely natural. It is entirely natural for humankind, natural for people to believe in the supernatural. It is entirely natural for people to believe in the supernatural. We've talked about this before. This is exhaustively and universally true. You cannot find a group of people that has ever existed in any tribe, uh, in any jungle, on any island, who has no acknowledgement of the supernatural. Doesn't exist. Why? Because it's nature. It's built into us. Literally, we came from the supernatural, and we crave to know the supernatural. We are made for it. And so if a person is to say they're an atheist, first of all, I don't believe people who say they're atheists most of the time. I don't think a person can really be an atheist. Everyone has a God. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're the God, but you have a highest authority. But if it is possible for a person to genuinely disbelieve in anything supernatural, that would only be because they are several steps deep into the wrath of God delivered as expressed in Romans 1, given over to a debased mind. They have suppressed the truth so much that they actually do believe that there is no God. This would be almost like the person who says, I believe I'm an orange. And you'd go, the only way a person can actually believe that is if their mind is so debased that maybe they actually do believe it. Because we were created to relate to the extraordinary, the supernatural, the supernatural, the divine. We were created to acknowledge and relate to God. So the apostle here is reminding us that the word that gave life to all mankind, who is the light in all image bearers, that light was coming into the world. Verse 10 continues, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus, the word, the true light, was in the world. The world that he created, he also visited. And how did the world respond to him? Yet the world did not know him. Know him. That word for know there is an intimate kind of know. It's the exact same word used of uh, of Adam and his wife Eve knowing each other. Uh, it's, it's, It's that kind of more than just an intellectual, oh, I think I have an idea that there's something out there, but it's an actual, personal, intimate kind of knowing. The world did not personally relate to him, personally know him in the way they were created to. We're going to unpack this more in future weeks, but you might want to make a note right here that the word world, world, cosmos in Greek right here, is used all over John. 78 times it's used in John. The other three Gospels combined, 14 times. So John just uses this word on repeat over and over and over and over. And he uses it in many different ways. The world can just mean like earth, like dirt, right, like physical dirt. Uh, it can mean the globe, the sphere, like uh, as, a, as a planet, the planet, the world. Uh, it can mean the sinful people on this earth. It can mean all the people on this earth. It can mean a whole bunch of different things, and we'll certainly deal with those differences as we get later in John. But here... Here, I think that he means to say that the people in the world did not recognize him for who he was. I think that's that's what's meant here. The people of the world. I don't think it's the trees didn't know him. I think it means we, sinful mortals, the everyone from the prior verse, the previous verse. All of us have had the light shine upon us, and yet we did not know him. Now, we might, if we were to read through the Old Testament and consider the different nations, the peoples of God, the things that they had heard, what they had been taught, we might expect that it would be challenging for a Babylonian, or a Roman, or an Egyptian, or some northern barbarian. We might expect for one of those people to not be certain that this Messiah character figure might arrive. To be sure, they knew there was a God that is placed inside of their hearts. But to know that that God was going to become a man, we might be able to give them a slight bit of a pass on the expectation that that would happen. Even though he's the creator, how would a Gentile know of his coming? We might expect them to not be ready for his coming. So this might not be a shocking verse for us to see. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. But how about the Jews? Look at the next verse with me. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. People here is implied, because it's a personal kind of um, uh, 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 something, entity, having a knowledge of him. It's probably talking about the people of God. In fact, Almost all commentators are in agreement on this one. A uh, few, few variations. But this is the Jews. Jesus came to the Jews, his own people, his own people, They did not know him. If you don't know this already, it might be helpful to just quickly understand the Old Testament is written to tell us the story of the Jewish people. It's like why it's there. It tells the story of the Jewish people. This matters to us, okay? But it's really of all humanity, of all the people that lived all over the globe, it hones in on a single people group. And it kicks off in the first book of the Old Testament of Genesis to quickly get to the person of Abraham who God selects out of all mankind and says, through this guy and his descendants will come the offspring through whom all the world will be blessed. Through this Abraham guy. It'll be through his descendants, who will be the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jewish nation, will come from Abraham. Right out of the bat, early on in Genesis, he calls this guy Genesis chapter 12. From that point all the way to the end of the other 39 books of the Old Testament, of the 39th book of the Old Testament, It's all talking about these Jewish people. And the only time we even see other nations talked about is when they happen to interact with Israel. That's why, because we're honing in on this people group. A promise was made that God would bring a Messiah that will save the world, and he'll bring the Messiah through that line. That's why history had to focus in on that people group. and So Jesus does certainly come through that family line. He comes from Abraham. He comes through that line of the, the 12 tribes of Jacob. He, he's he's, he's the, from the tribe of Judah. He's, 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 he's of the pedigree of the Jewish people. They still existed. They, they still knew who they were. They still knew the, uh, you know, what tribe they were from. And all of that was still present back there in this day prior to the first century A.D. And Jesus arrives in that time to his own people. They didn't receive him. Now, you might know this, but how is it that God spoke to his people under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament? Through prophets. Every book of the Old Testament was written, recorded, or preserved by prophets, prophets of God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us this. Long ago and many times in various ways, God spoke to our fathers, our Jewish fathers, by the prophets. And so... Not only were the prophets in the Old Testament, but John the Baptist, who we just heard about. John the Baptist was the final pre-Christ prophet pointing to his coming. Matthew eleven thirteen 13 even says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Nearly all of the Old Testament prophets were Jews, sent two Jews ultimately pointing to the coming of the Messiah, who was a Jew. And so, this Jewish Messiah, who was to bless the entirety of the world, comes to his own people and they do not receive him. They do not receive him. Now, you might sit there, like I talked about the Gentiles before, and go, No excuse for rejecting Jesus. I'd agree with you. They have no excuse for rejecting God. But how much more so the Jews? They had the oracles of God. They had every prophet, every prophet of their past was giving them clues and indicators pointing to the coming of the Son. In fact, even the most hardcore Pharisee—remember the Pharisees, the the opponents of Jesus—that we most we see most readily in the gospel accounts—those Pharisees didn't say, "There's no Messiah." They said, "Of course, there's a Messiah. You're just not Him." Right? They knew there was a Messiah. Everyone knew this. Even non-Jews like Herod knew a Messiah was coming. He calls in the Jews. Hey, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? I know there's supposed to be one. Where is he supposed to be born? Of course, the Jewish people knew this, and yet they were in rejection of him when he arrived. They did not receive him. I want to unpack this just for a moment and let this be our our closing. A few points about the world's rejection of Jesus. Consider first the fallen nature of the world. It is the default disposition of all people to reject Christ. Remember I told you that we were created to relate to God. But in the fall, when sin entered the world, corruption, perversion, even of thinking, invaded in such a way that we now became naturally predisposed to not relate rightly to God. Now, we were designed to relate to him. But today, it is an effect of our natural depravity that the world is intrinsically unreceptive to Christ. And much more than that, the world is downright hostile to Christ. I've had... Non-believers asked me before, like, well, if this, if this Jesus guy is so real, if there really is a guy, why not just show up, show yourself to be real, do some miracles or something so all of us can know? Why doesn't he just come down and prove himself? And my answer is, he did. He did. And they killed him. It was fatal. You see... We can't play this game that if only there were more miracles, if only Jesus returned again, if only others think, oh, you think that it would be different somehow now? No, the world is downright hostile to Christ. It shows just how lethal our natural hatred for Christ really is. And it is because of this rejection that we are in condemnation right now. John 3, 18 through 19 says this Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever does not believe is condemned. They're under condemnation now. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. People reject Jesus. They're hostile towards him. Why? Why is it that people today are hostile to Jesus? To his person, his work, his message? Why? I'll read that again. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So, why do people reject Jesus? The biblical answer because they love their sin. Because they love their sin. They already have a king, they don't want a new one. They already have a code of ethics that they live by, they don't want another one. They love their sin. So, what then should we as believers expect of non believers in our lives? A rejection of Christ. A persistent rejection of Christ, apart from his supernatural work. In other words, we ought not look at the world, scratch our heads and go, why do they not love Jesus? Why aren't they submitting to Christ? Why aren't they giving themselves over to what God demands? Because their works are evil. And the more ferociously a person rejects Christ, the more openly the more boldly they will reject the truth. You know, Jesus will say about himself later in this gospel retelling in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When somebody rejects Jesus, they reject the way of salvation. They reject the truth, and they reject life. This is why when you and I are looking around us and seeing the world just go into further and further disarray, the the more clearly they will say, we will not follow Jesus the more it looks like they've just lost their minds. Right? You go, this doesn't even make sense. How in the world is two plus two 27 squared? It doesn't make any sense because they have rejected Christ. They have rejected the truth. They love their evil works more. They love sin more than the Savior. The more ferociously they reject Christ, the more openly and boldly they will reject the truth. Romans 1.21 says, "...for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were," here's the word again, "...darkened." Right? Darkened. Same kind of language again. They love the darkness. They prefer the darkness." Light! Get out of there! Get out of there, light! You're making me feel guilty. You're making me uncomfortable. How much better if it was just all dark? That way I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted Right? See, people don't always say this. So, so if you're talking to another, another non-believer, they might not be saying this. But that is what's going on in the heart. And if you observe anything good, maybe there is something by the common grace of God that is restricting, restraining some of that evil in there, to be sure. Or maybe God's in the act of drawing them right now. And they're beginning to see the shadows and the darkness for what? They really are. But the result is that God has given up mankind to the lusts of our hearts, to dishonorable passions, and to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And so this is what we should expect. And it needs to be said that this is the great injustice, that creatures would prefer darkness to light, that we would not receive our Savior. This is the greatest injustice that exists, the greatest sin in the world. Answer this question for me. What was the worst sin that Hitler committed? Rejecting Jesus. That was the worst sin. No matter what you can say about what he did to people in this world, the wicked things to his own people, to the Jewish people, to to Poland, to the Netherlands, and to France, and to all of the area in that particular period of time, all of the awful, sinister, wicked tests that he did on human beings and devaluing of them, none of those are the worst sin. The worst sin that lets him be condemned before our God is that he rejected the Son This is the greatest injustice. And this is why we should not be at all surprised that those who reject Christ will have a totally skewed version of justice. And they'll stand on the streets and scream out, how dare you take away the rights of a mother to murder their child? And you say, wait, what did you just say? We're for freedom! We're for good and light! So kill your babies! And you say, what? How in the world can that be justice? Because when you have forsaken the truth and boldly and ferociously rejected Christ, that will come out in everything else that you think. The greatest injustice is a rejection of Christ. Not that sinners hurt other sinners. See, Christians can even fall for this if we're not careful. The greatest injustice that exists is not that people hurt people but that people reject Christ. That's the greatest injustice. We profane the name of the sinless one. The creature rebels against the creator. There is nothing worse. So try this on. Both brothers and sisters in Christ who are redeemed from our sinfulness and have been forgiven for the greatest sin in the world. But if you're not a believer today, you are guilty of the greatest sin a person can commit, the greatest one. And if you've ever thought in your heart, that I've seen wickedness in the world and I love my kids, I wouldn't do that, and I, I I love my neighbor, I wouldn't do that, and I've seen that wicked stuff, at least I'm not as bad as them. Yes, you are. And this is not to make light of the wickedness that people purport against each other, perpetrate against each other, but this is to say, you are guilty of the single worst sin in the universe. and that's why you are under condemnation. You are not forgiven of that wicked sin. But God sent his only son, this perfect son whom you have rejected in love for your sin. He sent the perfect son to live without fault, pure and blameless, like you should have lived, and I should have lived. At the end of his life, he went to a murderer's death. A torturous traitor's death. Not on his own behalf, he had no sin to die for in himself, but he died for you and for me. That if you and I believe in him, the penalty due for our wicked sin will be paid for by the very one whom we've rejected. And his perfect righteousness applied to you so that when God looks at you and you stand before him and he says, What is there to judge? He sees the sinlessness of his Christ and says, You are perfect you may enter into my holy rest. And just as Jesus was crucified on the cross but raised again on the third day, you and I, by belief in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, will be raised again to new life. You and I are dirty, rotten sinners. We have created the greatest injustice that can happen. We have sinned the greatest sin that is possible to happen. And it is why Jesus says the greatest commandment is not don't murder people. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you broken that one? How about this, Christians, have you broken that one today? We don't even have the capacity to love God with all the love he deserves. Yes, we are guilty, and if believing, forgiven. (laughs) So, believers, if you want to share the gospel with people, get ready for a lot of rejection. Because as the world rejected Christ, so they will reject his witnesses. Expect the world to resist Jesus. And hate that most wicked sin the most. I've said this before, and we all need to know this. We must hate our sin first and foremost. It helps, it fuels compassion in us. In fact, if you struggle with waking up in the morning, checking out the news cycle, and being filled with rage again, first of all, you probably need to just, if you can't handle it, turn that off. Go to God's Word, see the truth about your wicked heart and the forgiveness of sins that you have because of Christ, and step into the rest of your day with gratitude and compassion. And of all the sins that you rightly do observe in the world, hate rejection of Christ most. But believers, what does it say about us? We must be warned by this kind of thinking as well because there is still darkness in our flesh. There is still darkness in us. Romans seven eighteen, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And while you have made a new creation... You still wear the the clothing, the robes of your old self. Sin has not been entirely shirked off our shoulders and won't be until we die. This means that you and I are going to struggle with sin. We're going to deal with sin on a daily basis in our own hearts. That Paul, the apostle, at the end of his life can say, I'm the chief of all sinners. We must expect our flesh to resist Jesus. We even as believers, because of our flesh, are still naturally inclined against truth. Our only hope is that the Spirit will enlighten us through sanctification. And we've got to inspect our hearts to see if there are still some lies remaining, and we should expect to find them. Don't you know that there is still darkness there? It needs to be confronted. You need to expect to be challenged by it. Christians, you need to get very familiar with exposing your sin to the light. You need to get very familiar with the experience of finding yet another area where you're imperfect. Oh, I thought I had that one down. What? Here we go again. If you're a parent and you've ever cleaned up the basement, come upstairs, you know that two minutes later when you go back down and see the mess again? I just I just cleaned up down here. That's what it's like in the life of even a believer. We deal with sin the next morning, wake up again, all over again. My goodness! Because you and I are still in the flesh, and we must battle against it. We must expect that there's darkness in our behavior and even in our thinking. I've seen believers be firmly but gently admonished about a particular issue or something, and then watch the pride take over again. Whoa, 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 are you saying that you think it's possible, possible, that that area of my life is imperfect? Excuse me. Right? Brothers and sisters, we push back against this and go, now you might be wrong, but shine that little light on my, my heart here, my, my, my actions, my behaviors, my thoughts. Show me if there's any darkness in me. Is that not what heroes of the faith do like David? In Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Awesome lines. He's not saying, listen, God, I've been through a lot. I've gotten all that out. He's also not saying, God, I know exactly the problems I'm dealing with. And he goes, no, 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 no. I don't even trust my faculties to search my own heart. So you do it. You do it. You do it for me. You expose the darkness because I I can't even do that in myself. I oftentimes say that because sin so corrupts our minds, we should expect that even our faculties have been so perverted they need to be restored. In other words, to say it this way, you should be very skeptical of whatever truth claims you once held when you were an unbeliever that you still hold now as a believer. Be very skeptical. If you held to a worldview idea, if you held to a truth claim, it is possible that that's still true by the common grace of God. But be very cynical if the whole world who hates Christ and is still in an act of rejection of him agrees with you on something, be worried. Why is everyone agreeing with me here? Something's wrong. I don't like this. I don't like this. I think we need to get used to that. Feeling. Now, now, again, by the common grace of God, praise the Lord, there are plenty of things. that I'm betting most of your neighbors in your neighborhood will agree that theft is bad, that murder is bad. Now, whether or not that's always applied consistently is a question. But that's by God's common grace. But be skeptical of those things. Search out your heart. You must expose and eradicate sin in your life every morning, every night. I know that it is possible for a non-believer to not prefer the consequences of their sin, which looks kind of like repentance, which looks kind of like grief, but the Bible would call that worldly grief that produces death. So what's the difference then between a regenerate person who sins and an unregenerate person who sins? A Christian who sins and a non-Christian who sins? Because if there's darkness in both of us, then Rich, what's the difference? Well, at least this, not to mention your salvation. The unregenerate person, the non-Christian loves their sin, but the Christian hates our sin. We hate our sin. This is why if you've ever met with a believer and you're talking about sin, you just watch them just like burst into tears. I hate this. I've been fighting this and I can't deal. How different that is than when you ever meet with a believer and they feel they seem hard-hearted about something. That's where you're concerned, right? So hey, we've seen this sin. We've exposed this. We're talking about this. And they're like, "eh, that's a problem. Because we are not of the darkness, but of the light and should live like it. And that's the last point to make today, just as a reminder and encouragement by this. Yes, we are sinful. Yes, we are in the darkness. Yes, we're going to be this way until we see him face to face. Until we finally shed this sinful body and someday get a new one that's sinless. Colossians 1.12 tells us this truth. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patient with joy, giving thanks to the Father... Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a cool image, isn't it? Darkness and light. I'm grateful for the illustration that's given to us over and over in the Bible because... Darkness is powerless against light. Powerless. Have you ever turned on a light and that, that worked, that turned it on and the darkness pushed it out? <laughs> it doesn't work. Because wherever light shines, darkness is destroyed. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been given this victory. We are to seek it. We are to cry out for it. We are to align our lives in such a way that we are held accountable by brothers and sisters to eradicate any last vestige of darkness. And if you're not a believer today, you need to know that you are still dwelling in the darkness. You are. You're in it. We're not saying that's a mock. We have all been there before. We want the light for you. We want for you to receive Christ. And so repent of your sins, your sinful way of darkness, and turn in faith to him and do that today. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you again. With the word open and a desire in our hearts to to more align to what you have taught. Oh, Lord, we hate our sin. Teach us to hate it more and more. Lord, if there was something that the Mission Church, members of this local body, could be known for, that we could be known for amongst those around us, if we could be known to be those who hate our own sin, what a wonderful thing that would be, Lord. God, I pray that you would teach us to grow in that, to to seek light, to be grateful for the way that you have given us your Son, and not only as image bearers, but now as those who have been transferred to his kingdom of light out of darkness. I pray that we would call boldly, courageously to those who are still in the dark to come to the light. Father, we need you to do it. We need you to do this mighty work. Give us the privilege of watching it take place. But work in us, Father. Let us forever and always receive, embrace, and love the coming of your Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.